Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here again this morning, continuing on the sermon series. Um, But before we begin, um, this is going to get you guys back to church camp time, younger younger age, your your childlike memories. Um, You know, one of my memories going to church camp is always singing this song. And to kick off the sermon about Noah's Ark, what we're going to watch this video clip of Arky Arky. Bring back memories for anybody? Well, like I said, those were memories of my childhood, of going to church camp, of being in church. You know, those are the types of things that we teach our kids, you know. Pretty little butterflies and, you know, Noah going in the ark, loading the animals and it's going to be okay. You know, but... This isn't just the story of the ark. You see, God is sending a flood and judgment on the earth where everyone dies. And, ev- and we're teaching children the song about a floody, floody, and everything's going to be fine and dandy, dandy. You see, there's so much more to this story than we first realize. This is a story of God judging the earth. He's killing people where everyone dies. We've got to wrestle with this question. And that question is, what kind of God would judge people like this. We're going to begin our story in Genesis chapter 6 and follow it through the next several chapters. And we begin with one of the most intriguing sets of verses of all of scripture. And if, it's a, if it were a movie, it would be a very weird science fiction movie that would probably win a lot of awards. Chapter 6 verse 1 starts, When, a, when man began to multiply on the face of the land... And the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore them children, these were the mighty men whom were of old, the men of renown. So man is multiplying earth. Population is growing. And we have these characters, the sons of God. Now there's a debate on who these people were, but most interpreters believe them to be angelic beings of some sort. These angelic beings saw and took the daughters of man. These angelic beings, these sons of God, they see and they take human women. And the Nephilim are born from what happens. The Nephilim are held up as the world's heroes. Men of renown. You see this is a wild story. But what we're meant to see from this is that the spread of wickedness on the earth has reached new heights. So if we continue. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention and thought of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I've created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, as population increases, God sees wickedness spreading throughout the face of the earth. Verse 5 couldn't be more empathetic where it, where it talks about mankind is evil. Mankind is evil at its core. 
This describes our hearts apart from God's grace. And verse 6 teaches us something huge about the personality of God. The text says that as God looks out and sees all of this, it grieves his heart. Our God feels. Our God has voluntarily bound up in his heart his creation, his people. God experiences pain. Earth-shattering pain. When things go wrong in the life of his people, he feels it. There once was a philosopher that wrote, The tears of God are the meaning of history. In the garden we said to God, We don't want you, God. We can live our life our own way. And why wasn't that the end of the story right there? Why didn't God just wipe us all out right then and there? Because God decided to have tears. God decided to stay in the game. God decided to suffer and to love us. When we ask the question about the problem of suffering and the problem of evil in this world, we're only thinking about our suffering. But what about God's suffering? You see, it cost God a tremendous suffering to relate to us, to love us while we reject him, betray him, ruin our lives, make a mess of this world. It cost him so much. The two problems we have in this text is what can be done to fix the human wickedness? And what can be, God, what can be done to fix God's pain, his grieving heart over the wickedness of this world? You see, there's a whole paragraph about the Nephilim, the mighty men who turn their backs on God. But there are just five words in the Hebrew text that are given about Noah. And those words are translated, but Noah found favor. Noah found favor. The word for favor in the Hebrew word is grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is different. This is all we know about him at this point. That we find that he has found unmerited favor and grace in the eyes of God. If we continue into verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was righteous. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why does it say that Noah didn't grieve God's heart? But he found favor instead, you might be asking. You see, the text says that he walked with God. I don't know about you, but that's a great way to be known. As someone who walks with God. Noah walked to the beat of a completely different drum. He didn't go the way of his culture. He didn't go the way of his neighbors. He didn't get straight A's. Wow, everybody... He got... It's not that Noah got straight A's while the other ones got straight F's. Rather, Noah learned of God's grace and he loved and he followed and he walked with God. Noah learned of God's grace. If we continue on in the story, it says that now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them, I will destroy them with the earth. 
And he tells Noah to go and make himself an ark out of gopher wood. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. You see, this is the state of the earth. Its violence is everywhere. In Genesis chapter 1, when God looked out over his creation, what did he say? It is good. It is very good. Now, several chapters later, in the first book of the Bible, God looks out over his creation and he sees nothing but violence and corruption. This is what has happened to his creation. God takes Noah into his, alongside of him and he tells Noah his plans. That he will destroy all the flesh with the flood of water. He will destroy the people who have already been destroying themselves and the earth. But God will preserve Noah. Why you might ask? Well in verse 18, God establishes a covenant with Noah. Why? Because of grace. Noah found grace. Noah found favor in the Lord. This is an unmerited relationship that Noah didn't deserve. That we don't deserve. This is a huge God of the universe saying to we little Noah. I will keep a relationship with you. And I will protect you. And will preserve your life. And will be your God. You see our God isn't a God of fleeing. Or one night stands. He's a God of staying in relationships with us. Who keeps his promise. Who loves us. That's what a covenant relationship is. So God tells Noah to do something. God tells Noah to build an ark. Later he will tell Noah to enter that ark. And then he will tell them to exit that ark. But this is the first thing God says to Noah. Build an ark. You see... This ark, it wasn't just something little. And the ark is, is ginormous and big and massive. It's the length of a football and a half. It's as wide as a semi-truck with two trailers. It's huge. It's wide. It, it's the height of five-story house. The total deck area is 95,700 square feet. The cargo capacity of the ark is, is like a modern cargo ship. And you could fit about 125,000 sheep-sized animals inside that ark. Plus, there's eight people that are boarding that ark. Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, and two of every living thing, male and female, will go with them. You see, Noah obeys. He did all that God commanded. And this is going to be a a repeated refrain throughout Noah's story. That Noah obeys God. Noah lives by faith. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Building an ark didn't make sense to those that were around him. And it must have taken years upon years for Noah to go out and cut down the trees. To haul that wood back. To fasten them all together. To make this massive structure. And it must have cost... Noah, a pretty penny too. 
What about gathering the animals? Anybody try to wrangle a cow into a, uh, a cow hauler or something? Or try to, you know, uh, herd some sheep? It, it's no fun. You know, it, it's challenging. It's, it's a lot of work. And how about getting the food and supplies ready that he's going to need for this adventure? You know, there wasn't a Sam's Club or a Costco or a GFS to gather everything. He had to do it all himself. If we continue the story in chapter 7, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And this is the second time that God speaks to Noah. This time telling him to go into the ark before it rains. Noah doesn't have a single line in this whole story. And we never hear his voice. We don't know what he's thinking. But we do see something. We see his actions. And actions speak louder than words. Noah obeyed. Are we obeying in our lives? You see, Noah's life is totally God-directed. He lives by faith. He lives by the ear and not by the eye. Basing life on not what he saw, but on the voice of God. He goes into the ark. And in the book of Hebrews, we see that Noah is listed in the first three people of the great hall of faith. Those who radically follow God, not knowing what the outcome is. And this is where the story begins to pick up some steam. In the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month and the 17th day of the month, on, the day, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Noah's wife and his sons' wives, entered the ark. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded. And the Lord shut them in. God shuts Noah into the ark. And then if you will, all hell breaks loose. God undoes his creation. In Genesis 1, we learned of God separating the waters from the dry land. And now that boundary is extinguished. The heavens windows are opened up and the rain begins to come down. Forty days and forty nights. It rains. It pounds and pounds and pounds on the ark. The earth is flooded and the waters begin to rise. But you see that forty. It is a biblical word that has hope at its very core. Whenever the word forty is used in scripture, we know that there's ultimately hope at the center of it. You see, 40 days is a period of time that is used for testing that leads to brand new beginnings. When, God, when, when God's going to do a new work among his creation, he goes through this time of testing. This 40 days. Let's listen to some of these instances. Take the nation of Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years before entering the promised land where God will give them a new start. Or how about Jonah who walked into the city of Nineveh and preached one of the greatest sermons. Where he, where he said that in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And the nation of Nineveh, a nation of pagans, repented and placed their faith in God. 40 days led to great revival. And what about Jesus? 
Jesus, who spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted, and then the Spirit descended upon him, and he began his public ministry. The world has never been the same since then. And now we have Noah and his family, who spent 40 days and 40 nights while it rains, and God purges the earth, and he's beginning to make new beginnings. And if we continue in the story, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from earth. Only Noah was left with those that were left in the ark with him. The floodwaters came in. They crushed the people living on earth. Earlier in Genesis, what we see God breathing into the nostrils, the breath of life, and they became human beings. Now the floodwaters come to extinguish that breath of life. People die. But the very same waters that come and crush people, pushing up the ark, and the life is preserved inside of it. God's judgment always contains grace. The flood on the earth lifts the ark, and lives are saved. Now the hinge of the whole story is Genesis 8, chapter 1, where it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made the wind blow over all of the earth. And the water subsided. When we use the word remember in English. What we tend to think of. Oh we remembered where we put our car keys. Or we remembered where we parked the car. After we come out of the grocery store. You know it's this idea of remembering something. That we might have forgotten. But that's not the idea of the Hebrew word. For remember. You see in Hebrew. The word means that God remembers. A previous commitment. To a covenant partner. See, God remembers that he has a covenant relationship with Noah and that he's going to keep his promise. Some of you might be wondering today if God remembers you. Maybe you know somebody or you're going through something that that is in this time of testing, this 40-day period. You know, does God still remember me? Why am I going through this? God, I don't see an end in sight. But if you know God, I'm here to tell you that if you know Him, He remembers you. If you know Him, you have a relationship with Him, and He does remember you. You see, God sent that wind to blow over the earth to stop the waters. You see, but there are other accounts in ancient literature about the about this great flood. And in those accounts there are these many gods. Not the one God that we know. The true God. The sovereign God. But there are many gods who are annoyed with all of creation. Because of the noise and the overpopulation that's going on. And for this reason those gods decide to send this flood. To the earth. But how different is that story from our story? Of the one true God. Who's grieved in his heart over the spread of wickedness on the earth. And what's his doing to his people and to his creation. You see in those other accounts. 
These many gods send a flood on earth, but they can't do anything to stop the flood. They can't control it. They panic and nothing can be done and all chaos ensues. But our God, our true God, makes the wind blow and the water stop. He can do that. He is awesome. He is amazing. He can do anything. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wives, his wife and his son's wives with them. The rain stops. It's been 40 days and 40 nights of non-stop rain, and it stops. You, you can imagine the time that it takes for these floodwaters to recede. And finally, the ark comes to rest in the mountains. And Noah patiently waits for God's voice and his timing. Noah doesn't just exit the ark. He doesn't burst forth once the ark stops. No, he waited. He waited for God to tell him to build that ark. He waited for God to tell him to enter that ark. And now he waits to hear God's voice telling him to exit that ark. God speaks to Noah for a third time and he tells him to exit that ark. And what does Noah do? Noah obeys. Noah leaves the ark as he was commanded. And as he does, this this new start, this new beginning of earth begins. And what's the first thing that Noah does? The first thing that Noah does is mentioned in verse 20. And it says... Then Noah built an altar of the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from its youth. It rained and poured for forty daisies, daisies. The sun came out and dried up the landy, landy. Everything is fine and dandy, dandy. But is everything fine and dandy dandy? I mean, this is the ultimate social experiment. Get the good and faithful people, the people that you like, and you don't want to extinguish and put them in an ark to start over. Create a new land. Well, you see, everything is not fine and dandy dandy. What went into that ark with Noah? The animals went into the ark with Noah? His family went into the ark with Noah. But there's something else that went into that ark. Sin went into that ark. Sin went into the ark with Noah. And we learned earlier in Genesis 6-5 that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And in chapter 8 verse 21 we hear that from the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Sin went into that ark with Noah. Sin isn't just an issue of poor behavior. Sin isn't eliminated by getting the wrong people off the earth and the right people into the ark. It's so much deeper than that. Did the the flood solve the dual problem of human wickedness and God's pain over the wickedness of the earth? Absolutely not. 
be the flood didn't solve that problem. And the Lord was under no illusion that now mankind has turned over a new leaf. And that these eight people had learned from the flood and their evil and wicked ways. You see, Noah grew up around the evil and wickedness. His family grew up around that. Noah was one of them. And the very next chapter we're going to see that Noah... Noah, this man of righteousness, this man that was found favor with God, is going to become drunk and naked. He's going to royally screw up what's going on in his life. Noah is no better after the flood, but grace found Noah. And that's why he's on that ark. Grace found Noah. You see, we all deserve the flood. But the amazing thing about this story is not God's judgment. It's not the flood, but rather the amazing thing is God's grace. That he would save Noah, that he would save you, that he would save me. You see, the flood points us to something greater. The flood points us to God's grace. You see, there is one very big change after the flood. It's a change that happened because of the offering that Noah that Noah sacrificed. An offering and its aroma. The pleasing aroma is actually an aroma that puts to rest. This is the aroma that goes up to God and and Noah, if you look at his name, actually means rest. God's grieving heart is now put at rest, not by the flood, but by the aroma rising from Noah's offering. This burnt offering. This sacrificial offering. And this is the amazing act of grace on God's part. Namely that he allows himself to be put to the. Put at rest by this bloody sacrificial burnt offering. Where God turns away from his wrath on his people. Who deserve it. This isn't because man has changed. Mankind is the same before the flood as it was after the flood. But something in God has changed. His justice and his grace met meat in a burnt offering. And there's, that's the solution to the problem of God's grieving heart and human wickedness. A bloody burnt offering. You see, Noah's offering foreshadows the ultimate bloody sacrifice. The bloody offering that we all know. God knew that no animal or human offering could fix this problem of sin in the world. So God sent his son from heaven to solve the problem. At the center of history is a big block of wood. And this big block of wood is not an ark. But it's a cross. It is at the cross where the flood of God's wrath pushed Jesus down to death. So that we could be pushed up and saved by grace. You see, Philip Yancey calls this exchange the atrocious math of the gospel. One burnt offering, one savior, equals a new start for billions of people. God blots out the life of his son so that our sins could be blotted out and our lives would never be blotted out. It's the atrocious math of the gospel. This is grace. Do we deserve grace? Absolutely not. Does this grace amaze you? Most definitely. 
If you trusted in his son, God is at rest with you. If you made a commitment to God, he's at rest with you because of his son. And the whole life is lived under the cloud of grace. God's grace. Let me tell you about this grace. His grace is bloody. It costs the life of his son. And it never runs out. The forecast for you is always grace. And it always has been. There are always clouds of grace awaiting, flooding your life. It will never, ever run out. God says to Noah in Genesis 6, 8, where it says, Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Can you put your name in that verse? Have you found favor? Have you found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Let me tell you, you have found grace in the eyes of the Lord if you trust him. If you commit your life to him. See, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how you performed this last week. I don't care how you're going to perform this week. But let me tell you, the forecast is grace. A flood of grace. This preacher once said, it is God's accountancy... He is always giving us surprises. You never know what he's going to do. His bookkeeping is the most romantic thing in all of the world. You see, our ledgers are out of date. There's no value. We're in this kingdom of God, and it's God's accountancy. It's the grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that's when you and I come to our deathbeds. The one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us is the one thing that has helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. As we begin to close this morning, I want you all to think back to your childhood. And, you know, tilt your head back, stick out your tongue. Come on, come on. You know, yeah, y'all remember the song, uh, uh, if all the gumdrops and, or lemon drops and gumdrops, raindrops. So, well, we're, we're going to do that. You know, uh, standing outside with my mouth open wide. Ah, 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 ah. Oh, come on, that was pitiful. Let's do it again. If all the raindrops were, oh, let's, come on, come on. Standing outside with my mouth open wide. And that, that is what the Christian life should be. We should be standing outside with our mouth open wide, tasting the rain, tracing, tasting this grace that God offers to us. You should feel those raindrops of grace on your tongue, on your head. Yet you should put that grace into your life. Yet you shouldn't just store it up in a bottle. And leave it all to yourself. Maybe for that rainy day. You know this grace is never going to run out. This grace is for one. For all. For everyone. And we should be out there. Changing the world because of this grace. That God has offered to us. As we, as we close this morning. The Christian life. It starts with grace. It must continue with grace. 
And it must end with grace. Wondrous grace. This wondrous grace is yours. This is the forecast for the rest of your life. Don't you dare try to relate to God. Try to live your life. Or try to, re- try to relate to other people on the basis of your mathematics. On the basis of what you deserve or what you think you deserve. But live your life by the mathematics of the gospel. The atrocious math of the gospel. Where Jesus Christ died for you. And he was raised. And he lives. And he offers this grace. That we can have an everlasting relationship with God. So if that sounds like a great thing for you this morning. I, I offer this invitation. Where we are here with welcome arms. Where we are here celebrating what God has done for us. So this is your time. To make that decision. Say yes I'm ready to live my life by grace. I'm ready to live and share what this grace is all about. What God has done for me. So as we come to communion or invitation. However it goes. That this, that this time, you know, may mean something special to many people. As we come and, and think about where we've come from, what we've done in our lives, our failures, our struggles. And then we get to this one point where, where the cross is in front of us. We, we kneel down and we say, God, I can't do it without you. That this means everything. You know, one of my professors in college always said, and I'll never forget it. You know, we have all these, these mess-ups, these screw-ups in our life. But because of what God has done for us, by sending his son to die, when we get to the pearly gates, when we get ready to go through our judgment, you know, they're going to look at the book of life. And they're going to say, Oh, so-and-so. Yes, yes. You know, they're going to look and look at you. They're, they're, they're going to see, yeah, there's some failures. There's some screw-ups. But when they look at you and they look back because of the commitment that you made to Jesus, because of the commitment you made to God, that page is going to be white. Your sins, the things that you screwed up on are never going to matter because of what God has done for you.